Pure Tokyo Scope. Where are you coming from, Pure Tokyo Scope? Nobody knows who you are. Hey, this is Patrick Macias, the host of Pure Tokyo Scope. And I'm Matt Alt, the author of Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. And I disagree with that, Patrick. Everybody knows who we are. It's like we're a movie star, to quote to quote a famous song uh, written by some geniuses. I make big money. I drive big cars. Everybody know me. It's like I'm a movie star. But late at night, something ain't right. I feel I'm being tailed by the same sucker's headlights. So how are you on this fine, fine fall morning? I'm doing okay. You know, actually, we're recording this today on the anniversary of the death of Stan Lee, who passed away on November 12th, 2018. Ah, oh, geez. Yeah, so Stan's kind of been on my mind lately. You know, as a as a writer and an editor, I don't think there was another uh, guy in the game who uh, gave more. You know, also another reason why Stan Lee is on my mind is because uh, I heard this amazing podcast called How Marvel Comics Changed Tokusatsu in Japan Forever featuring Ted and Gene Pelk. It's uh, on the Crew of Japan podcast. And the special co-host of that episode is you. That's who? Me. No, that was actually a lot of that was a lot of fun to do. The uh, the crew of Japan is the uh, the official podcast of the Japan Society of New Orleans or Nowlands, and uh, they're a bunch of great people. And I thought it was really cool when you know they reached out to me to help them with Gene Pelk interviewing. I, I had spoken to Gene Pelk a little bit when I was researching Pure Invention, but unfortunately, those sections didn't make it in the book. So it was cool to see him getting his due. And he and, and Stan Lee go way, way, way back. Gene Pelk was a gentleman who approached Stan Lee in the 1970s with the idea of selling Marvel's comic books in Japan. Gene was married to a Japanese woman and had spent uh, quite a bit of time in Tokyo in the 1970s where he noticed that many people uh, were reading manga, that manga were everywhere, Japanese comic books. And he thought, hey, you know, these are all Japanese. Might there be an opportunity for American comic books here. So he went to, to Stan and he literally just talked his way up to the top of the Marvel building, which I assume is kind of like the Fantastic Four building in, you know, in, in downtown Manhattan and got an audience with Stan. And Stan basically was like, hey, man, uh, you know, if you want to say you represented us, go for it. I don't have any like support to give you or anything. But if you want to do this, you know, we can discuss compensation or whatever once you once you show some results. Gene went to Japan and he failed at selling American comic books in Japan, but he greatly succeeded at convincing Toei to make tokusatsu shows based on Marvel Comics characters. And you're probably familiar with at least one of them. Spider-Man. Spider-Man. And like, you know, to get these deals going, Gene had to come back to America with film reels of like Go Ranger and Jacker Dengeki Tai, which were the big Toei uh, Sentai series of the era. And Gene told me that when he screened those in the Marvel offices, there was complete silence, except for Stan, who jumped up and said, Now this is comics! You know, which is to me such an amazing moment in like US Japan cultural relations. To, by all accounts, Stan was like really the only one at. Marvel Comics who got what Toei was trying to do and was completely supportive of it. I think the rest of the Marvel executives thought that Japanese people were completely insane. We've got we've got Bill Bixby as the Hulk. <laughs> we've got Nicholas Hammond as the amazing Spider-Man. 
What's this Japanese stuff? I don't get it. Gene and Stan were a kind of peas in the pod, and they really went on to even even though Stan was kind of overseeing things from the states, and Gene was really the guy on the ground. You you can just tell there's a lot of simpatico between those guys, and it's one of the earliest bridges I think between Japanese content and U.S. content in a kind of pop cultural way, and it, it laid the groundwork for so many things. Actually, you can make the argument that without Spider Man, the entire Sentai series. Would have just basically ended. Uh, it wasn't doing well, and they were planning on canceling it. And then Spider-Man hit so big that they decided to kind of copy the formula and put a robot in every Sentai show. And that's where we are today. To be kind of the interface for like the, the Transformers and like all of these other you know Marvel co-production things going on. Also, My Little Pony. For all you bronies out there. It's kind of like American Moe, isn't it? So that podcast is absolutely a must listen. And what it did is it got me thinking about Stanley and I realized, hey, wait a minute. I have a couple of audio interviews I did with Stan Lee from 2008. Sure would be fun to play those here on the Pure Tokyo Scope podcast. So this time we're presenting not one, but two interviews I did with Stan back in the was it the good old days? I don't remember what 2008 was like, but uh, it was it was a while back. And we have two interviews. And the first one, we're catching Stan right as he's doing a bunch of new collaborations with artists in Japan and, and animation studios in Japan. Uh, the first interview was done for uh, Otaku USA magazine. We were experimenting with a podcast. Stan was doing Ultimo. He was a collaboration with Hiroyuki Take, who was doing Shaman King, and he was doing it for Shonen Jump. He's very excited to be working with Shu on this tale of two robots. I think Stan is actually a great fit for the Japanese manga producing model, which is extremely, extremely editor centric. Like a lot of consumers in the West think that manga is really auteur artist driven. And of course the artist is making it. But it's hugely, hugely editorial driven, especially at places like Shueisha Jump. You mean you mean Shuisha? Shuisha. 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 Excuse me, pardon me. So you'd think it'd be kind of a match made in heaven, but as we now know, uh, none of these attempts to really crossbreed the the manga and Marvel DNA really went anywhere. So in this of the first two interviews, yeah, we mainly talk about Ultimo, although we do get into some Japan stuff about thoughts on manga in general, and most importantly, Japanese Spider-Man. So here we go with the first of two interviews I did with Stan Lee in 2008. And we'll be back with a short introduction for part two after this one. Hey, Patrick. Stan, how are you doing? How the hell are you? I'm fantastic, actually. Yeah, well, I figured that. <laughs> well, largely because I'm talking to you. I have to say... I know, it must be a big thrill, but try to act cool about it. Thanks so much for taking the time out of your schedule to talk to us. Oh, you should be grateful, of course. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, let's get rolling with Ultimo. How did you get involved with this project? Well, um, Sony Dream Ranch came to us. They wanted to do something with us. And our company, POW Entertainment, made a deal with them for us to be partners in doing this book, combining the best Japanese manga with the best of American comics. And, of course, it's a dream assignment for me. It'll be um, published by Shuisha, and um, we're also involved with JEA, which is another company. It's really a combination of POW, Sony Dream Ranch, Shuisha Publishing, and JEA. Gotcha. Okay, so what can you tell us about... 
about the story and the characters in Ultimo? A sneak peek, if you will. Well, I can tell you very little because I don't want to give away any surprises. But I can say it deals with two robots, the like of which have never been seen before. They are mortal enemies, and the fate of the world depends on which one wins the greatest battle of all. My goodness, that sounds fantastic. Um, How can you beat that? (laughs) (laughs) You can't. Um, I'm curious... Take your heart out, (laughs) Spider-Man. I'm curious about the main character and how he's different from other Stan Lee creations, like my personal favorites, The Silver Surfer and Doctor Strange. Well, let me put it this way. I don't think I've ever done a story featuring two ultra-powerful robots, each of whom has his own personal agenda. And that's the way they're different. It's a story... Of course, they interact with human beings, but it's the story primarily of this one robot who is our hero and another robot who is as powerful as him or maybe more powerful who is not quite as heroic as we would like him to be. Fantastic. Um, And the name Ultimo, it kind of reminds me of a certain bad guy from uh, Iron Man. How did the the name come up? Um, I don't know. I just thought of it in collaboration with our friends in Tokyo and between the two of us we just came up with that name. It, It sounded good. Fair enough. Okay, and um, since the story's going to be published first in Japan, uh, when you sat down to write, were you tailoring your work at all for a foreign audience, or were you thinking of us uh, fans here in America as well? Well, I think of everybody. I, I really didn't tailor it specifically. What I do when I write anything, I just try to write the best story I can and hope it'll be good and people will enjoy it. And after all... A good story is a good story, no matter what the language is or no matter where it takes place. Okay, and um, it can't be easy, though. There must be some challenges putting together a complicated international project like this. So what are some of the the day-to-day things you have to deal with in, in getting Ultimo off the ground? Well, I must admit, the two greatest challenges are the need to work through interpreters And the fact that we're separated by such a great distance that we have to do much, if not most, if not all, of our communicating through TV conferences rather than in person. And obviously these things are always easier when you just sit down and talk to the person you're working with the way I'm talking to you. Mm -hmm. But when you have to do it over a long distance and you have to do it with interpreters... It makes it more difficult, but luckily, the people I'm working with are as eager for this to succeed as I do. They have infinite patience with my lack of Japanese-speaking ability, and somehow we're making it work. Okay, so um, as far as working with Hiroyuki Takei himself, the artist of Ultimo... uh, How are you guys collaborating? I'm kind of curious because you basically are the Marvel method. I think about Stan creating the the dialogue and the captions after you get the art. 
but I'm curious this time what's new, what's different, or if it's the same old technique. I can't work quite the same way because of the distance between us and and the language difficulty. So what what we're doing, I have written the complete outline of the story on which Takai Sensei is basing his artwork. The scripted dialogue will be written in Japanese for the Japanese market, and later I'll rewrite it for the American market. So you see, it really is a true collaboration in the strictest sense of the word. And uh, have you met Takei yet? Have you uh, worked with him to get a sense of him as a, as a person and as a fellow creator of uh, comic book characters? Well, yes, we met recently in my office when he flew here from Japan. He is very likable, very cooperative, and the thing that excites me the most, he's very enthusiastic about the project, and he's certainly one of the best collaborators that anybody could ever hope for. He, Unlike me, he's also quite modest, <laughs> considering that he's one of manga's greatest artists, and frankly, my biggest regret is that I don't speak Japanese and we couldn't talk naturally other than through an interpreter. Gotcha. Okay, so this weekend is uh, the big New York Comic Con, and I know you're doing a presentation there for Ultimo, and since we're a bit ahead of the curve here, can you give us a sneak peek idea of what we can expect at the presentation and the panel? To tell you the truth, I can't. I'm sure it will be as big a surprise to me as it will be to everyone else, but I haven't really worked out the presentation yet. Okay, okay. Um, and I think we should talk about manga a little bit and how it compares to uh, American comic books. And did you ever expect in your wildest dreams that one day you would get a chance to write a Japanese manga? Well, let me put it this way. As a writer, I'm always looking for something new and difficult to tackle. And I'm certainly, certainly I've been aware of the worldwide popularity of Japanese manga. Therefore, I'm elated at the opportunity to try my hand at this, at what is really a unique and appealing type of storytelling. Okay, and um, as someone who really did define the modern American comic book with your work, are you surprised at all by the recent explosion of interest in manga in the U.S., and what factors do you think are behind it? No, I'm really not surprised at all. You know, people get bored easily, and they're always seeking out things that are different, provided, of course, that the different things are well done. Well, manga has a totally different look to it than the average American comic. It has a different style and its own mystique. And the fact that it's both different and so well done makes it very appealing to a growing body of American readers. So I'm not the least bit surprised. And um, do you think comics and manga are fundamentally the same thing, you know, or is there something very different about them as a result of the culture, or what do you think about that? Well, the best way I can put it is they're the same medium and they share the same objective 
which is to tell the best stories possible. But the actual styles are different. Okay. And、uh, as far as Japan itself goes, the place where manga comes from, have you been there before? Have you traveled to Japan?、Um, I've been to Japan a number of times. And it's because despite the fact. That both the language and the many customs are so different. I've always felt right at home in Japan. The people I've met have been always warm and friendly, and without exception, tremendously helpful. In fact, the amazing city of Tokyo is definitely one of my favorite places to visit. Nice. And, um,. As just a fanboy, I have to ask you, what do you remember about that time、uh, during the 70s when Marvel was doing a lot of projects with Japan, like the Spider Man TV show or the Shogun Warriors comic? I loved it because that gave me the opportunity to visit Japan a few times. And、um, so it was a great time for me, and I made quite a few friends over there. and...、Uh, We've managed to stay in touch, and、uh, I have a very warm spot in my heart for all things Japanese. That's great. Have you seen the、uh, Japanese Spider Man TV show? Yes, yes, I have. The live action. Yes, certainly. What did you think about that? Well, it certainly is different than the way we do it in the States, and it's very imaginative, and it's very. It's like eye candy. There is so much to look at that's so exciting. Do you think there's a difference between、uh, the way Americans create superheroes or like their superheroes and the way Japanese people like their superheroes served up? Well, no. I think that both the Americans and the Japanese like the same type of superheroes. I think the only difference. As I may have mentioned before, is the actual method of storytelling. The rhythm of a Japanese story is a little different than the American one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And、uh, going back through my monumental memory of all things Marvel,、um, there's some really funny instances of、uh, Japanese culture in Marvel comics during the 60s, like, for instance, Captain America fighting in Korea and suddenly a sumo wrestler appears out of nowhere. And、uh, I'm curious about what was、uh, Marvel's impression of Japan and Asia back in the 60s? Well, actually, not much different than, than today. We were, we were interested. I、uh, see, I, I am fascinated by,、um, by sumo wrestling, sumo wrestling myself. Really? In fact, the last time I was in Japan, I met, I forget his name now, but the fellow, the Hawaiian, who was one of the. Champion wrestlers.、Mm-hmm. And、um, I, I went to what they call a stable and I watched him、um, rehearsing and、uh, practicing and exp- exercising. So、uh, I, I've always been interested in Japan and in the entire Asian mystique.、Mm-hmm. And so have a lot of people at Marvel. And we've used Asian and Japanese characters as often as we could. Well, that's great.、Um, okay, so、um, I guess that just about wraps up all my questions. I'm curious if you have a special message for the readers of our magazine. Well, it would be the same message that I have for anyone who reads my stories. I, I hope that 
you'll enjoy reading Ultimo as much as I enjoy writing it. And if it brings you pleasure and satisfaction and enjoyment, that certainly is all the reward that I would need. Okay, that's sensational. Thank you so much, Dan. You're the greatest. Right. Listen, could you send us a copy of this interview? Oh, sometime? certainly. Certainly. That's great. Most definitely. Okay, best okay, of luck. Okay, I enjoyed it. Thanks for your help. See ya. Bye-bye. That was really bittersweet. It was really cool to hear Stan's voice again. I can't believe he passed away so long ago now. Like it, it feels like it was really recently, but it was 2018 is like, that's like a hundred years ago in internet years. Yeah. The second interview that we have here with him catches him like right on the cusp of going supernova. I think one thing you pick up from that Gene Pelk crew of Japan podcast is that there was a time when Stan was not a successful big name producer. He had trouble getting some of these projects off the ground, but in the this 2008 interview I did with the Japan Times uh, with Stan Lee, we are right on the cusp of the release of the first Iron Man movie, which is basically going to give birth to the MCU. But I just remember being so blown away by the first Iron Man movie. I was like, wow, they got it right for a change. Because, you know, we'd, we'd had the rug yanked out from under us so many times. Then in the wake of Iron Man, of course, Stan Lee becomes literally like a household name. He's not just like the Grand Poobah at the Comic-Con anymore. And a face, like, you know, he's actually acting in all of those movies, which I thought was was really kind of cool. So for the second interview, we were basically talking about more general comic stuff. He took a lot of fanboy questions from me. He was not in quite the hucksterish mode he was when he was trying to sell Ultimo to me like two weeks earlier. Right. And it's a very cool conversation. I got to ask him about Godzilla, uh, the birth of the MCU. And uh, this is actually one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. Because he it, also because he bestowed upon you your superhero name. But no spoilers. So here we go, true believers, on to part two of our Stan Lee interviews. Excelsior. Hiya, Pat. Stan, hey, how's it going? All right, where are you? I'm in San Francisco right now. Oh, you're not in Tokyo. I wish I was. <laughs> Can't win them all. Um, but, you know, actually we met really briefly about 15 years ago at a Comic-Con, really briefly, and you called me Peerless Pat, and I just wanted to thank you for that because it's kept me going all these years. Oh, yeah, I remember. Let's see, you were wearing those brown pants and the white shirt. and uh, Sure, I remember. <laughs> so how are you, Peerless? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Okay. Um, two big projects, two big movies are coming out this summer, Iron Man and The Hulk. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you remember about the creation of those characters, and what do they mean to you today? Well, they, they mean a lot. In fact, they mean more every day as they become more popular. Um, years ago when I created them, I was just having a lot of fun. I mean, with Iron Man, um, I wanted to get somebody. I modeled him a little bit after Howard Hughes, somebody who was very rich and was an adventurer, but still had a lot of personal problems. And with the Hulk, I um, I had always liked the movie Frankenstein with Boris Karloff. And I always thought that the monster was really the good guy. He didn't want to hurt anybody, but those idiots with torches were always chasing him up and down the hills. So I thought it would be fun to have a a monster who was really the hero. And then I remembered the movie and the book, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And I thought it would be really interesting if this monster could transform back into a normal man and keep changing back and forth. So that's how the Hulk got started. I'm curious, why do you think comics have always been sort of marginalized in the U.S., you know, sort of treated like kid stuff and looked down upon by, 
critics and what have you, and yet have developed into like a mass entertainment medium in countries like Japan or in Europe? Unfortunately, un- unfortunately, comics got off to a bad start in America because when they started, the publishers felt that they were just for very little children or for grown-ups who were <laughs> semi-literate, and ha- they had no respect for their audience, for their readers. Consequently, they never bothered to structure a a well-written plot. They never cared about keeping the dialogue realistic. They didn't worry much about characterization. They just tried to get a lot of pictures with a lot of action and figured that would hold the interest of the very young children. It was only years later (coughs) when, I think mainly when Marvel Comics started writing stories that were geared for older, more intelligent readers, And we began to get older, more intelligent readers, and that began to expand the comic book business. And now comic books um, are totally different than they were years ago, and they have a lot more respect, mainly because so many multi-million dollar movies are based on comic book characters. Uh Um, I know during your work at Marvel, you sort of... uh very quickly tapped into a host of hot-button social issues like black power and drug abuse and people dropping out of society. I'm kind of curious if you sort of see the need for comic writers like yourself to continue to address these themes today or if you feel you are still addressing these themes in your own way. I don't think you can help it, you know, because it's very hard not to write about things that are happening in the world whenever you're writing about them. And, for instance, when we look for a good villain today, who better than a terrorist? (laughs) Because there are terrorists who exist. However, again, in writing fantasy and the work I'm doing with the Japanese, the manga we're doing, they're really strictly fantasy stories. So right now, in the beginning, they don't much reflect any problems in the world today. But I think as we keep doing them, little by little, some contemporary problems will start sneaking into the stories. Taking it all the way back, I mean, I hope this isn't too sensitive a subject, but I I, I don't know what what you did during World War II. I think you were a playwright. Was that? In the Army? Yes. (laughs) I I wrote training films, and I wrote, Uh, And I drew posters, um, uh, instructional posters that would convey messages that the government wanted to give to the troops. Um, So I didn't know this, but after I was discharged from the Army, I looked at my discharge paper, and it, it lists your name, your address, and all of those things. And there was one place where it said, military occupation. And after that, it said playwright. I couldn't believe it. So I checked into it and I found out there were only nine people in the United States Army that were classified as playwrights. And for some reason, I was one of them. (laughs) Um, Funny. Well, another thing on the way back is, um, you know, the early Marvel monsters, guys like Fin Fang Foom, 
Hopefully, oh, that, yeah. Okay, I'm kind of curious about the influence of Godzilla movies on that phase of uh, Marvel. Oh, that was they were probably very influential. I loved those Godzilla movies. You know how I got the name Fin Fang Foom? No. When I was a little kid, there was a movie from China. I, th- I think it took place in China. I don't remember what the movie was, what it was about, but the name of the movie was Chu Chin Chow. And I never forgot that name. For some reason, it stuck in my mind, Chu Chin Chow. So when I had to come up with the name of a monster, I, I somehow subconsciously picked a name that had the same rhythm, Chu Chin Chow, Fin Fang Foom. <laughs> So with those uh, giant monsters, you weren't necessarily chasing a trend so much as you guys, you and, say, Jack Kirby were, were actual fans yourself and going to see those movies? Oh, absolutely. Wow, okay. And um, moving on to the future, there's so much talk nowadays about the death of print in the digital age. I mean, do you think we'll still be reading comic books in the future, or has this medium kind of run its course for the 21st century. I had that discussion with a writer yesterday. We were talking about it. And he was saying people will be reading their stories and their comics on um, their video uh, sets and on their telephones. And, and and I told him that I'm quite sure that you'll be able to get comics on your cell phone and you'll be able to get them on your iPad and whatever else you have. But... I still think people will want to buy and read comic books themselves because it's more pleasant to read a story with pictures on a page that you can hold in front of you and you can refer back to it, you can show it to a friend of yours and you can save them and collect them. And there's something nice about sitting in a chair comfortably with a with a comic book or any kind of a book on your lap and reading it. And um, I remember when television started, everybody said, well, this is the death of publishing. Nobody will buy books anymore now that they have television. But the book business is as healthy as ever. So if I had a guess, I would guess that comic books will still be around for a long, long time. Um, with so much competition from other mediums and forms of entertainment, what do you think they offer as artistically as a medium that other things don't? Oh, I think um, an ease of uh, uh, enjoyment. It, it, again, they don't cost that much compared to other things. And they're, they're so easy, you pick one up, you sit down, you put it in your lap, and you start turning the pages. You read it at your own speed. If you like it, you save it. Uh, you show it to a friend. You you exchange them. You, you lend him one and you borrow one of his. It's just an, a nice thing. I think they offer a very pleasant form of entertainment. Just one last fanboy question. I'm curious, since you're one of the greatest, not only writers, but editors of all time, how much of J. Jonah Jameson is in Stan Lee? Oh, um, I'm 100% J. Jonah Jameson. In fact, if I were younger, I would have insisted that they let me audition for the role of Jameson in the Spider-Man movies. 
I, I loved writing that character, and I, I do think he's a lot like me. He talks too much. He gets too excited. He's usually wrong the first time out, and <laughs> he's me. And he hates Spider-Man, unfortunately. Well, I, that's the only difference. I kind of like Spider-Man. I'm prejudiced. Okay, thank you so much, Stan. Thanks for your time. Oh, sure. Hey, it was a pleasure talking to you. Good luck with the article. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Spider-Man, where are you coming from, Spider-Man? Nobody knows who you are. Yeah, so, you know, that was really, really interesting for me to listen to because I did, uh, you know, a lot of deep diving into the kind of transition of manga from kid stuff in the post-war era into kind of like a really adult-oriented medium in Japan. And the stuff that Stan is saying about comics in America, it really kind of, it, it, it's evocative of that. It really reminds me a lot of those uh, transitions that happened in Japan. The, the big difference being that like it happened in Japan way earlier, like comics became recognized as a kind of full-fledged expressive medium, at arguably as early as the late 1940s, when, when Tezuka did this uh, title called Shintakarajima, New Treasure Island, that brought kind of cinematic pacing to the comic page. That was, that was 1947. And it really kind of changed manga hugely. That wouldn't happen in America until the 60s, really, the late 60s. And I, you know, Stan says that it happened with Marvel and Marvel definitely did start injecting a lot of really interesting social commentary into its comics. But I, I don't actually think that comics were well regarded in, for many decades after that in the States. This is one place where Japan was way ahead of the curve uh, and why I think Japanese manga are still so you know incredibly popular around the world today, whereas reading Marvel comics on the printed page, unfortunately, is not, I don't think. But you know, when you look at the sales figures, I think the biggest selling Marvel and, and DC and all American comics titles are getting lapped by manga. Whereas you can flip that around and say Marvel is making way more money than Japanese publishers on all of the MCU stuff, the licensing, the TV series and things like that. They've definitely figured that angle out of it out. So it's just a, it's a different way of expanding the core business, I guess you could say. I don't know what Stan would make of this wild, wacky world we live in today, but you know, we sure do miss him and uh, there'll never be another one quite like him. I, I told him, I think before I started recording these interviews, I, th I really think the Western canon, it's two people. It's Shakespeare and Stan Lee. And I, I actually <laughs> believe that with all my heart. He's a big part of my, you know, uh, uh, personal like, you know, intellectual DNA. So it was really great to to be able to hear these interviews with him. My only, uh, uh, you know, regret is that I couldn't have been part of them when it happened. But I'm glad. I'm really glad you did it. Thanks, Peerless Pat. You're welcome, Marvelous Matt. Premiering Wednesday, The Amazing Spider-Man. Nicholas Hammond and guest Joanna Cameron, star of ISIS, race to locate a deadly plutonium bomb and the ruthless Mr. White, who would destroy the world. Don't miss The Amazing Spider-Man, Wednesday at 8, 7 Central and Mountain, next Wednesday on CBS. So I want to thank everyone for listening to our show. Thanks for supporting us, and we'll be back this time next week, same Matt time, same Pat channel, with a brand new episode. And just make sure to watch out for the Fin Fang Foom. Fin Fang Foom.